0: Hello! Before we share the latest episode of Victorian Samplings, we have a suggestion for you. At craftingcommunities.net, a wonderful crafters tutorial that is relevant to this episode awaits you. It was created by one of our guests, Sabrina Mark, and in it she shows us how to use a needle, some thread, a scrap of fabric, and a sharpened pencil to create broderie anglaise. A fabric ornamentation featured in women's and children's clothing in the Victorian period. Fear not, Sabrina's tutorial was developed with absolute beginners in mind, and we think you'll really enjoy it. Here's our episode. <music> Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Victorian Samplings. In recent weeks, our podcast team has been wondering about Victorian-era clothing, about its construction and design, but also about the cultural work that items of clothing can do. We're delighted to welcome three guests with knowledge of these topics. Anne Hung will share her conversation with Manon Godet about a quilled vest created by a Dakota maker in the late 19th century. Jessie Cron speaks with Kristen Guest about policemen's uniforms and their evolution. And we'll hear from Sabrina Mark about her experiences sewing and wearing, historically accurate reproductions of Victorian-era apparel. Let's get started.
1: Hello, I'm Anne Hung and today I'm recording on the traditional territory of the Lekwoangan peoples. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Manongol day to the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So one of the objects you've been thinking about recently is a late 19th century Dakota vest. Could you describe it for us?
2: Sure. So the vest is made of hide. Um, it's most likely deer, but we don't know officially the material. Um, and it has a set of porcupine adornments, velvet trim, and a linen lining. And it's kind of in the form of a European waistcoat or vest, if you might be familiar with that. And on it is a set of quillwork decoration of butterflies, flowers, and a set of American flags. So the decorations on this vest are, you know, upon first look. They might appear to have certain resonances with maybe Victorian aesthetics or American aesthetics, where you have, for example, these crossed American flags on either side. You have a lot of floral imagery, which is very common in Victorian aesthetics. But when you look closely, you note things like a really strong emphasis on bilateral symmetry, which is a very strong aesthetic component to Dakota art making. As well, if you look closely at the flowers, they have a kind of direct lineage with Dakota art making and the representation of the natural world and then the American flags kind of stand out as this somewhat unique presence where you might ask yourself you know why are these American flags on this vest what are they communicating
1: and the the kind of detailing on this vest is known as quill work could you tell us a bit about quill work
2: Yeah, so quill work is a type of textile adornment or embellishment that uses, instead of maybe thread, as you might be familiar with in terms of embroidery, it uses the quills of porcupines in order to create the adornment. So one of the things that is kind of most significant about the jacket is that it is quill work, and it's from the late 19th century, and quill working is a practice that continues to this day in various Dakota communities as well as other Indigenous communities. Quill working, I guess, competes with bead working, but it takes more time, the materials become somewhat less readily available, and so it's significant that this vest is made of quill work in the late 19th century because it points to this kind of intergenerational transfer of knowledge and of techniques, even while well into what in the United States is referred to as the reservation period which is the kind of movement of communities onto reservations where there is more of an effort of control and assimilation from the American government.
1: Um, So I understand that the vest was part of a recent exhibition at Yale. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, so there was an exhibition recently at Yale
2: University Art Gallery called Place Nations, Generations, Beings, 200 Years of Indigenous North American Art. And it was quite a landmark exhibition, both in terms of Indigenous art more generally and particularly at Yale, because it was the first kind of exhibition to bring together Yale University's collections of Indigenous art and material culture from three different collections on campus, the Beinecke Rare Books and Manuscript Library, the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History, and the Yale University Art Gallery. And One of the other kind of key elements of the exhibition was that it was also co-curated by a group of students, a group of undergraduate students who really campaigned for the importance of this exhibition to bring an Indigenous presence into the Yale University Art Gallery. And they published a catalog that's available for sale, and it's been met with a great deal of success.
1: I'm interested also in what we know about the vest maker, so the artist who created the vest Uh, What do you think people interested in the material history of the 19th century can learn from viewing and thinking about this object? Yeah, so I think it's really important that this object be
2: thought about in the context of kind of Victorian aesthetics and art and culture. It might seem odd in some ways or kind of out of the ordinary to think about this vest um, because it doesn't beyond its European kind of waistcoat aesthetic, maybe doesn't necessarily um, strike you immediately as something that is Victorian in the way that we might think of Victorian. But what it speaks to, I think, is this kind of intercultural exchange. And it tells us a little bit about what it meant to be Victorian in America at a time when there are A lot of, you know, cultural influences coming from Europe, from the kind of maybe more like traditional Victorian aesthetic side of things, but also a lot of contemporary politics in the United States that are impacting art making and especially art making by Indigenous peoples. So with this vest, we don't know about the artists. We don't know who made it, though there is a lot of work that's being done that can kind of interestingly draw on techniques of connoisseurship to trace stitches and things like that back to individual makers. So there's always potential that something like that might be done with material like this. But what we can kind of hypothesize is that this artist is someone who is really reconciling with their contemporary existence and presence on a reservation, under the control of the United States government, and yet also trying to work through and preserve elements of their traditional culture. And so that's why we have this combination of the kind of floral motifs with the Dakota aesthetics of bilateral symmetry, etc., alongside these American flags. And given the kind of contemporary history of subjugation, of assimilation policies, of direct war against indigenous nations, it really is striking that the American flag is used. And so we can see it as participating in this kind of material negotiation in which the American flag has what the art historian Ruth Phillips calls a double signification. So it might signify to, for example, an American Indian agent on the Dakota reservation where it's made as a sign of allegiance, a sign of assimilation. And yet for the Dakota maker, it may also be a kind of tool that distracts in a way, or demonstrates some kind of assimilation in order to create an opportunity for these types of intergenerational transfer of knowledge. So art historian Adriana Grassi-Green has an entire dissertation written on July 4th celebrations on Dakota reservations and the role that American flag motifs play in that kind of setting, where Celebrating July 4th, doing the whole kind of American nationalist celebrations was really a way that the Dakota were able to practice traditional ceremonies and dances in a setting that was kind of already celebratory and they could kind of hide or... Um, fit in their own traditional practices that were otherwise banned under the banner of this American national celebration. So I think we can kind of imagine or hypothesize that this vest is participating in that kind of practice. And it's certainly not alone. There are many vests like this with American flag motifs um, by both Dakota and Lakota people.
1: And finally, could you describe your experience studying this vest as a settler scholar and maybe give some advice to those wishing to begin this type of research?
2: Yeah. I mean, I guess one thing that I'll say is that it's really important to me as a settler scholar that I am not an authority on this vest or its material or its cultural history. And I really approach it as a learner. And I was interested in bringing it to this setting as a learner because it's been something that has been really powerful for me to think through both this vest and sort of other objects like it to think about how artists are negotiating multiple different aesthetic systems current politics and what we can learn from these objects and so i encourage people to you know if you're interested in this type of object go to some of the scholars that i've referenced like adriana Grassi green ruth phillips to learn more about both victorian aesthetics and their intersections with indigenous peoples and about the particularities of kind of the American flag motif in the July 4th celebrations. And there's a recent exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art that I also really recommend that was curated by... Darian Turner, who is an enrolled member of the Yurok Tribe of California. And the exhibition is titled Stripes and Stars, Reclaiming Lakota Independence. And it's really all about objects similar to this one that feature American flags and thinking about how the American flag motif functions for
1: indigenous peoples of the United States. On behalf of the Crafting Communities team, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing a Dakota artist's once known work with us. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. For links to the resources discussed in this segment, please visit the Victorian Samplings webpage.
3: Hello, I'm Jessie Cron. I'm speaking today with Dr. Kirsten Guest, a professor of English at the University of Northern British Columbia and a member of the editorial team at the Victorian Review. Today we'll be discussing her work on the history and representation of uniformed policemen in Victorian literature. Kristen let me know about Sir Robert Peel's founding of the Metropolitan Police Service in 1829. She explained how Peel's modernization of policing was a response to increased rates of crimes against property. She also explained how Peel's work built on models and practices that were developed by both the Bow Street Runners and the Thames River Police. In what follows, We'll hear from Kristen about how uniforms shaped the working lives and public perception of members of the Metropolitan Police Service, colloquially known as Peelers. I started by asking Kristen what got her interested in Victorian-era police uniforms.
4: I got interested in the uniforms uh, when I started a shirk-funded project quite a few years ago, and I was doing archival research. One of the things that I was I started out being interested in was. Class and the way that that came through in things like novels or Victorian melodramas, different kinds of uh, Victorian media. And so I went back to sort of how Peel laid out policing in the first place and how it was that early sort of 10 plus year history impacted the shift to working in plain clothes. And that's primarily the group that you see in Victorian literature. When policemen appear in uniforms, they're pretty stereotypical usually. So I started to look at that and I was interested in in what that meant. Like, so what did it mean to be in a uniform or not be in a uniform? And what did it mean that the uniform was chosen to look certain ways? They were self-consciously trying to do a couple of things that are interesting and Contradictory, and to some degree, those contradictions still persist in policing today. What Peel wanted was basically a merit based force. He says right from the beginning that this is going to be about advancement by talent and that everyone has to progress through the ranks in order to move up. So it's really quintessentially middle class aspirational in a lot of ways. At the same time, they decide to recruit out of the working classes, and the French force at the time was quite militarized, and they said, we don't want that. We don't want them to look like they come from the military, so we have to come up with something else. And what they did was they invented a uniform that's kind of a riff on what the Bow Street runners wore before them, but really what it does is it conceptualizes the uniform and the policeman as a servant of society. And so The early uniforms, you know, which includes a sort of a a tall top hat, um, a stovepipe hat, a swallowtail coat, light colored trousers in the summer and darker colored trousers in the winter and boots is analogous to what you would put your coachman in. <laughs> it's echoing modes of male dress, but at the same time, it's hallmarking this group of people as servants to society and therefore not threatening. It also sort of sets up the assumption that, that prevailed early on, but that was really quickly displaced because it's patently not true. And that's, they assumed that policemen were gonna be there to police the, the lower classes. That's totally not how crime works. So they had this sort of idea that the job itself would be middle class, would be about developing your talents, your merits would be promoted that way. At the same time, they had this idea of uniform that sort of took away the frightening parts of that for the British public, which was we will be able to identify these people visually. They are are positioned as servants, not to question people who are above them in the social scale, and they will be ultra-supervised. Like, so they will be on a beat, they will report all the time. It sort of takes the city and sees it almost in terms of a domestic home with servants in it. So there's this real conflict, and the uniform is sort of at the heart of that.
3: Now, you've mentioned how these uniforms meld pieces from lower and middle-class fashions, How did these uniforms reinforce or blur what may have been considered a clear demarcation between different socioeconomic strata?
4: This is where the the police uniform sort of butts up against the history of men's fashion. They're not trying to make them fashionable. They're just trying to make them look like respectable. And in doing that you have sort of the questions of quality. So the materials, the difference in how something is constructed and what it's made out of is sort of the original marker that gives you the class tell. A gentleman in 1828 would likely be wearing an expensive beaver hat. His coachman would be wearing something that would hold up out out of doors. And in the case of the, the police, their top hats look like top hats, but they're made out of leather, you know, so they're they're made to be really ultra durable. What happens over time, though, that, that I find really interesting so that the top hat is adopted in, you know, as part of the original uniform and it hangs in there until the. 1860s at which point they shift to sort of something that's moving towards what you would see a Bobby wearing now the, the helmet. those things are are transitioning they transition the uniform significantly in the 1860s but in between you have things start to happen that inflect the objects differently. so top hats themselves start to change so you get the the silk top hat. You also start to get the manufacture of things, that are harder to differentiate visually. Mass production changes the really super distinct difference between something that's made to look like A and something that's made to look like B. And you get these sort of things that really change how it signifies. So one of them is that Prince Albert adapted the top hat. So they went from being something that was you know, a general men's article and it meant certain things to, to all of a sudden the stock went way up. Um, and then you start to see things like the etiquette of how you wear them becomes more and more important. Things like the conduct books for men, almost, you know, or books about fashion and how to, you know, they'll discuss like when you go to a dance, you do X with your hat. And so over time, that that sort of starts to distill into it, that it's not just the object or what the object is made out of that, that tells you how to see it in class terms, although those things really do persist. And now if you read the etiquette on wearing a top hat, like they'll tell you it should be at X place on your forehead. It shouldn't be tipped too far to the side. Like there's an angle. All of these things are really super codified. And that is sort of a process that's going on over the course of the of the 19th century. But it seems to me that when they make the pivot off the original uniform to something else, that there's there's sort of two things going on. wearing a stovepipe hat and trying to do police work was really difficult. Like it is no way suited to that work. So there's, you know, there's the sort of health and safety issue. The other issue though, is I think that at some point they needed to find a new way to demarcate class differently, because that's the point at which men's fashion and police uniforms start to, to diverge. And you get something that looks really recognizably like this is a policeman in uniform. And that's sort of, it takes off from there. And that's what we live with now.
3: Do the policemen in these texts that you're looking at successfully adhere to these codes of conduct? Like, does it seem like
4: they've read the book, so to speak? That varies based on who's writing the book. (laughs) One of the things that, that I was interested in, and I've published a little bit on this, is in things like sensation novels, Braddon, um, Dickens's Bleak House, um, you know anything where you have a, a plain clothes policeman where they show up, they're interesting because in a lot of ways they're highly accomplished. Um, so if you think about someone like Dickens, he is considered to be, you know, he was considered to be one of the people who really pushed the early detective force. He was a fan in a lot of ways. There's always something about Dickens that's like, these guys are awesome. They're super smart, but please don't be fooled into thinking that they're middle class in any kind of significant way. So he does really interesting, subtle things with how he depicts them. And it includes making them visible in particular ways, depicting their manners. And it's it's quite subtle. But if you, if you then go to someone like uh, Inspector Bucket in Bleak House, who is based on Inspector Field. Uh, So you have Dickens sort of, he writes about and describes Inspector Field, and then he turns him into a version of Inspector Bucket. If you you go to the objects of clothing that Inspector Bucket wears, and some of his behaviors, and you really scrutinize them, it becomes clear that he is someone who is attempting to look like a middle-class man, but not quite making it and it's things like his jewelry is too gaudy. (laughs) His mannerisms are gauche. They kind of like set him up as a, a tradesman or a wannabe rather than as someone who understands what he's doing with his dress and is implementing it correctly. If you go to other things, you get sort of different treatments of the clothing. And so what's interesting about the plain clothes guy is that he's taking a lot of the same components now not rendered as a uniform. So he has to go out and he has to look like every other man on the street. He's supposed to not be detectable himself, which would mean wearing certain kinds of clothing. It would mean wearing a suit. um, It would be wearing a hat things that would would give up the game, that you are a lower class person pretending to be an upper class person. So detectives sort of move into the range of they are having to wear normal person clothing. And the fact that they are not distinguishable in their clothing means that they cause a lot of anxiety. So it's like, what if I can't tell who one is? What if they're looking at me? What if a lower class person who was really good at studying these things could learn how to present themselves as someone who was higher up the scale. In sensation fiction, the, the the turn to making it obvious that they're not succeeding mediates that anxiety for a particular kind of viewer. For another kind of viewer, though, the idea of the policeman, especially the plainclothes policeman, as something to aspire to, means that they almost function as primers on how to think about certain kinds of things. What policemen themselves have to say about themselves is something that I've looked at. When they write about the uniform or things that they're doing, they always focus on the subjectivity inside the uniform. There's this really interesting tendency to to talk about the feeling, like that I am not a machine, I am not an institution, I am a person, they set themselves up in ways that attempt to say, I have not the clothing you know, or the outward appearance of a more refined person, it's I have the sensibilities of a more refined person, but mainly I have emotional register, and the way that they do it is in poetry, Constables will send in their poetry and publish it. And what they're writing about is the job, but they're really writing about themselves as emotional, subjective, feeling individuals within their jobs. It's something that, that becomes a real hallmark of how you see a policeman and how a policeman wants to be seen.
3: It seems like these mixed signals are creating anxiety between middle and working class people, but where do the aristocracy fit into this? it would seem to me that the aristocracy have the most property and therefore have a great interest in the establishment of the police force.
4: Yeah, I would say that this is something that really does predominantly focalize around groups that feel anxious. The way that the aristocracy shows up in a lot of this, you know, is usually on the fringe. They're sort of doing their own thing. And I think that the reason at the end of the century that you get the gentleman detective who has nothing to do with the police, uh, you know, so Sherlock Holmes would be one sort of version of that. But there's, there's, there's snazzier ones, upper class figures who, who sort of privately handle or privately sort of sift those things. You know, it's, it's almost like a, a different kind of detective who's outside of all of this gets formulated to work with the, the wheels and woes of that group. The the group that's primarily sort of provoked into anxiety around these things would be the lower middle and middle classes where you're starting to get, um, you know, distinct strata and increasing sort of anxiety, irrespective of policemen or even, you know, laborers about where precisely do I fit you know and they're the ones who have the massive anxiety about am i doing this right you know that, that's why you have mrs beaton to tell you exactly what you need to serve at a dinner that whole sort of habitus of your, your yourself your objects your you know your possessions but also your cultural capital your your knowledge of of things and your ease with them i think that there's sort of a, a big group that's struggling with that. So you have people who want to sort of claw their way out of the working classes and into something else. And usually, you know, that that would be people in service, um, people who become extremely, you know, wealthy through, through success as an artisan or, you know, in, inventing things. Like you have so much mobility that people are coming up and they need to sort of be instantiated into all this and at the same time you have you know because of the intense economic instability at the time you also have people falling out of it all the time and so people hang on to their objects in ways that are quite marked. To me that one of the interesting figures in terms of representation for this is Sergeant Cuff and the Moonstone you know, Sergeant Cuff, when he shows up originally is, is sort of described as everyone has this weird kind of response to him, like there's something off about him or, you know, they don't know what to do with him. And Gabriel Bettridge says, you know, he is he looks like a parson or an undertaker or anything but what he really is. And so there's all of this, you know, like people just don't know what to do with him when he comes back. And at the end of the novel, after he's retired and he's now ostentatiously a country gentleman, he's now sort of made the shift to doing the middle-class thing, which is you retire to your, your villa or your cottage or whatever, and you, you know, engage in your eccentric hobbies or, you know, whatever it is that it's like, he has completely changed as a human being as a result of changing his clothes and his, you know, and his mode of living. It's, it's sort of, I think the, the making of that shift That people are worried about and I think he's a lot less worrisome as an amateur at the end than he is as the great detective that no one knows how to read.
3: Thanks so much for joining me today, Kristen.
1: I am joined by Sabrina Mark, a recent PhD graduate from the Department of English, Theater, Film, and Media at the University of Manitoba. Her research interests include women's writing of the 19th century, girls literature of the early 20th century, historical dress, and gender. Sabrina is also an avid seamstress who makes historical clothing. Thank you so much for joining me, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to start by asking, when did you begin sewing? And then what inspired you to begin making historical clothing?
5: I first started sewing when I was around 8 years old. My grandmother sewed and uh, my mom taught me how to sew. So I started at a pretty young age and that's around the same time that I also got interested in historical clothing. I'd been reading the Little House books and soon after that I read Anne of Green Gables. So. All I could think about were calico dresses and puffed sleeves, and that really got me into historical clothing through literature.
1: I was lucky enough to attend your Broderie glace workshop uh, earlier in the year. So for those of you who don't know, Broderie glaze was a popular form of needlework in the 19th century. I'll ask you as our expert, could you tell us a bit more about Broderie glaze?
5: Yeah, so Broderie glaze is a form of white work embroidery, which means that you use white thread on white fabric. And in this case, it was usually cotton or linen. It was very popular throughout all of the 19th century and continued to be popular afterwards. We kind of know it better now as eyelet, and you see it's made by machine now, but it was very common handwork uh, in the 19th century. And I think part of its popularity is really due to its simple nature like you just use a lot of really basic stitches you don't need any kind of specialized tools or techniques or materials all of the supplies that you would need like a needle thread scissors and just plain white fabric were kind of readily available to most kind of western world women even if they were living in other parts of the globe so it It shows up a lot in what was termed lingerie, which is not just underwear, but it does include underwear. It really means clothes that could be washed or laundered with soap and water. This includes things like collars, cuffs, in addition to underwear like chemises, drawers, petticoats. It also seems to be really common in fancy children's clothing, and I think this really speaks to its kind of robust and utilitarian nature like you could wash these things they didn't need to be handled carefully and spot cleaned you could send them off with your laundress to be scrubbed.
1: Could you tell us a bit about your research into historical clothing and how that sort of intersected with your passion for making clothes? So when I look at historical
5: clothing a lot of it is through literary representations that was kind of my academic focus during my master's degree I was really interested in the gender dynamics of presentations of clothing and how they interact with social roles. But when it comes to creating uh, historical costumes, researching is actually one of my favorite parts of the project. Figuring out how things were done or how I might do things, which are not always the same thing. But this whole idea of design and creation is part of what I really enjoy about the process of making, figuring out all the different uh, components. So I like to look at extant garments. Uh, There are lots of online museum exhibits that are really great. I look at portraits. I look at fashion plates. Depending on what era, I look at photography. There are often also instructional print materials like fashion magazines, like goties, Uh, or dressmaking manuals, there are a lot of kind of instructional manuals on dressmaking and plain sewing and all kinds of different techniques during the turn of the century. So I like taking all this kind of intangible research and creating something tangible. And it comes from something like maybe I just read about in a book or I just seen a picture of, but then I can make something that I can hold on to or like put on myself (laughs) And, the, and the, that kind of transformation I find really fun and interesting.
1: To give us an idea of this transformation, we asked Sabrina if she could walk us through the dressing process using the late 19th century garments she's created and tell us a bit about the history behind some of these pieces.
5: Thank you for listening. I'm going to take you through the process of getting dressed in a typical ensemble from 1895. So to get started, we have the very first layer that would be closest to the body, which would be the chemise and drawers. These kind of underwear garments were typically made of cotton or linen because they were closest to the body they would need to get laundered more frequently so they would need to be more robust and easily washed. By the 1890s, The chemise and drawers, the two separate garments, were often replaced by a combination garment that had kind of a chemise on the top and drawers on the bottom that would be worn under the corset. But before putting on the corset, you'd want to put on your shoes and stockings. These are easier to put on before the corset's on because the corset impinges on the mobility a little bit from bending from the waist. So it's easier to reach your feet when you're not wearing your corset. Stockings could be made out of cotton, wool, or silk. They could be patterned. Some had very elaborate patterns on the front of them. Or they could be plain. Shoes would typically button up. Uh, That would button up kind of on the side with a button hook. So once you had your shoes and stockings on, you would put on the corset. Now, the corset that I've made is um, made out of cotton. It's a soft kind of fawn color, but corsets of the 1890s came in a wide range of materials and colors. They could be covered in silk, satin, or brocade. They also had health corsets that were made of wool. The colors of corsets in the period kind of exploded into this rainbow. The most common colors, however, or what you might think of as maybe being the most kind of respectable or ladylike colors, uh, would have been white, kind of neutrals like beige, gray, or black. Corsets were boned with whalebone often, but by the end of the century, the whaling industry had endangered whales, and so substitutes were often used, like steel or cane. My corset is boned with plastic, a modern innovation. I find it much lighter and more comfortable to wear than steel, uh, though I have made corsets that are boned with steel before. I'm using, actually, (laughs) cable ties, the sort that you use to kind of corral your electronics wires and they're sort of similar to modern synthetic whalebone but not quite as rigid. So to put on the corset it's loosely laced at the back. You'd fasten the busk at the front. So the busk is a piece of separating metal. So It has loops that fasten over top of posts. So the front opens completely and then you uh, hook the loops over the post. Once the corset has been done up on the body with the busk, then you can tighten the laces at the back. What you get is a sort of feeling of being hugged. It's not meant to be painful. It's not meant to be uncomfortable, although it does take some getting used to because we're so used to not wearing these kind of foundation garments. Modern people are used to wearing things with a lot of spandex and stretch and clothing of the Victorian era predominantly did not stretch. It was woven fabrics rather than knit. So after your corset is on, it's a good time to do your hair. This allows the corset to kind of settle onto your body. You might need to readjust the corset after it's been on for a little while and tighten up the laces a little bit more. Especially if you were, say, dressing for an evening event when you want to have a very small waist. After doing your hair and kind of readjusting your corset, if needed, then you'd put on the petticoats. So, petticoats act as a support for skirts to hold them out in the fashionable A-line shape in this era. Um, After the garments were washed, they'd be starched and ironed, and this would give them stiffness. My petticoats are cotton, but in the 1890s, petticoats, just like corsets, came in a wide variety of materials and colors and patterns. So they could be silk, they could be wool, I've seen a pink alpaca petticoat. Um, They're put on over the head, so you need a fairly large waist opening. One of my petticoats has a drawstring, um, which allows the waist to get really large. So you're not messing up the hairstyle that you just did when you put them on over top of the petticoats, i have a corset cover the corset cover is kind of like a cotton sleeveless blouse or a camisole it buttons up the front it could be used as an extra layer for warmth so sometimes they're made out of wool but they kept corsets from being visible through the outer layers of clothing, especially if you're wearing a sheer or lightweight uh, shirtwaist or dress, so you wouldn't want your corset to be visible to other people, it would be immodest. It's sort of like how we wear maybe a tank top under a sheer blouse today. Over top of the corset cover, I have my nicely starched shirtwaist. A shirtwaist is a blouse or a shirt. The word waist kind of comes in there because bodices or anything on your torso would be called a waist. Mine is made up of a striped cotton shirting. It has a high collar and Lego mutton sleeves, both of which were very fashionable in the mid-1890s. So an ensemble like this with a shirtwaist a skirt, potentially a matching jacket and or a vest is clearly very menswear inspired. It's like the woman's version of a men's two or three piece suit. These kind of items were really practical. You could have one good kind of suit and change out all of your waist or tops to get different kinds of outfits the way we do now. Once the shirt waist has been buttoned up, On goes the skirt. My skirt is a wool suiting, so in keeping with this menswear suit look, it's a tan-colored glen plaid, and I made it with pockets in the side seams for added practicality, but I later learned that in the 1890s, pockets, rather than being on the side, could be put frequently in the back seam, which is kind of unusual. and makes me think it might be inconvenient for sitting. I have yet to actually try out putting in a back seam pocket, but it seems like it was fairly common around the turn of the century. My skirt hooks up the back placket and on the waistband. Lastly, there are a couple menswear inspired accessories. So, I have a silk satin bow tie that I made out of a sort of russet colored silk. Um, bow ties were very popular, but you also see women wearing cravats or scarves. And then to top it all off, a hat. So, I made a straw boater hat. Uh, I trimmed it with the same silk that I used to make the bow tie so that I had a nicely coordinating outfit. But it really ties into, again, those kind of menswear look because items like bow ties and boaters were historically worn by men and later adopted by women. So now I'm fully attired as a late Victorian woman, ready to pay a call, go to a shop, or head to the office.
1: You have been listening to Dr. Sabrina Mark on Broderie Anglaise, 19th century fashion and historical costume making. For more on these fascinating topics, please visit our webpage.
0: This is the part of the podcast where we say thank you. Thank you to Kristen Guest. Manon Godet, and Sabrina Mark for sharing their expertise with us, and a special thank you to Sabrina for kindly agreeing to record herself so we could listen in as she assembled the pieces of her 1890s outfit. To get a better sense of Sabrina's skills and interests, and to give one of her many skills a try, why not visit craftingcommunities.net and try out the wonderful broderie Anglaise tutorial Sabrina shares there. Thank you to student team members, Anne Hung and Jesse Cron for their work creating all three segments for this episode, researching, interviewing, recording, and producing the interviews we've heard. Thank you also to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of this episode, and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji-Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode of Victorian Samplings with you soon.